0: Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles uh, in the back. You can pick those up at the door and feel free to keep one. As you turn to Acts 13, also uh, look in the back of your Bible and your maps. Most of you should have a map in the back of the Bible. I think all Bibles come with a brief set of maps. And you'll find Paul's first missionary journey it might say Paul's first and second and be color-coded but if you can find that map it'll really help you tonight so you'll see that Paul if you're how many of you are looking at a map right now did you find it okay a few more minutes anybody not found it yeah you can have mine so if you need to run to the back and get a bible it's okay you're not going to get scolded or anything or called out So if you're looking at a map, Antioch, which is northern Syria, is where Paul's going to start on his missionary journey, and we're going to read this tonight. And then he'll go to Cyprus, which is an island there just off of Antioch, visit two cities, and then goes what's to modern-day Turkey and ends up in another Antioch. But at two different Antiochs, one Antioch in Syria and one Antioch that's there in Turkey. So that's the section that we'll be covering tonight. So Acts chapter 13. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open up our Bibles and our hearts. We see how Paul was moved by God and Barnabas and they took a step of faith. Lord, we desire for our lives to be fruitful for your kingdom. We want to be in love with you and hear your voice. Lord, for those steps of faith that you're encouraging in our lives, may your spirit speak loud and clear. Would you bless the study in Jesus' name, amen. Let's actually look at verse 25 of chapter 12, and then we'll head into chapter 13. It says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. They had been given the task to take a special offering to the church in Jerusalem. So they fulfilled that task, now they come back back to Antioch with John Mark. And we're going to see John Mark become a player in this story. So verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there was a certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. So Simeon may actually be the man who carried the cross of Jesus Christ. Niger literally means black, so he was probably African American. And we know the man that carried the cross of Jesus Christ was from the Africa region. So it's a real diverse group of leadership here in Antioch. You may remember back to chapter 11 where we saw the birth of the church of Antioch. And these men are are listed. And then Mahon, who had been brought up with Herod. Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So Mahan was raised with Herod. And this is Herod Antipas, who actually beheaded John the Baptist. If you were here last week... Kent talked to us and exposed us to the variety of Herods throughout the Bible. Herod is a title that's given to a leader. So this is Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist. And we find a man growing up with Herod but deciding to be the disciple of Jesus Christ. Haven't you found that to be true inside of families, inside of friendships? You might have a group of friends and they're all going down this road of destruction like Herod. Herod Antipas, and then one decides, no, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or you might have a, a family, and there's a group of kids, and they're growing up with the Lord, and then one decides that they don't want to walk with the Lord. So this man, Man seems to be plucked out of a dark place, and now is a leader in the church. And finally, you have Saul. And they're all gathered together. Notice what they're doing in verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, I think this is significant because it shows that leadership in the church there's a plurality and I'm so thankful for the group of pastors that we have here at RMC because it's never to be on one person's shoulders one man's shoulders and these men here are coming together in the unity of the spirit I'm so thankful for how God has blessed us with a team of pastors here and it's a joy to be able to to serve with them but then we also find that these men are in love with Jesus Christ And that's not necessarily just a given. That's God's heart and that's God's intent that leaders in the church would be in love with Christ. But these men have set aside time, I'm sure they're very busy, just to get together to fast and pray and we find to minister to to the Lord. And this is an important lesson for us. It's an important phrase for us because a lot of times we put what God has called us to do, our work for the Lord, before our ministry to the Lord. And you might be saying, Well, what's the difference? In the Old Testament, there was a group of priests in Ezekiel 44. They were called the sons of Zadok. And they were actually rewarded by God to come and minister to the Lord. There was another group of priests that were unfaithful, that served in idolatry. And God said, okay, for them, they're going to do the work for the people, but they're not going to be able to come into my presence. But these faithful priests, the sons of Zadok, they are going to come and minister to the to me. They're going to be able to come into the holy of holies. And there's an aspect of our relationship with God where he just wants us to come and spend time with him. We find this with Mary and Martha. Remember the sisters? Is Mary, she got it right. She got the one thing that was needed and she was sitting at the feet of Jesus just to hear his words. Now most of us are workers before we're worshipers. We just tend to put the work of the Lord before the worship. But the worship is the real privilege to take time to be in his presence, to sing to him, to read his word, to wait upon him in prayer and in fasting. It wasn't like this group got together and said, we want to find a way to reach this region of the world. As great as that is, that's not why they got together. They simply got together because they wanted to glorify God. They wanted to set aside food. They wanted to worship the Lord. They wanted to minister to the Lord. They just wanted to let God know how much he meant to them, how special he was to them. And then out of that, the calling of the Lord came out of ministering to the Lord. As you draw near to God and put him first in your life, then you do hear that still small voice of God saying, Donnie, this is what I want you to do. Steve, Ray, this is what I I want you to do. But it's always the worship that comes before the work. So now the Holy Spirit speaks. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. How did the Spirit speak? We don't know. We don't have the details. Most likely it probably wasn't an audible voice. We don't see that in the book of Acts where the Spirit is speaking with an audible voice. It, It could have been. Most likely, as these men were praying, they all had a similar thought. It was all upon their hearts that, hey, I think it would be a good thing for Barnabas and Saul to go out together. They've already, not like go out like that together, but not to go out together, but to serve the Lord together. That didn't come out right. Did you guys even catch that? You caught that, didn't you? To serve the Lord as a missionary team together. They're like, yeah, this is the Lord, and this is the Spirit. And this is God's call in our lives. It's also going to be confirmed by other godly men and women, isn't it? Is they're going to begin to say, yeah, that resonates me with me. The Holy Spirit is speaking to that in my heart as well. And then notice what is said about them. Separate to me. Paul and Barnabas' life, Saul is also called Paul, as we'll see in a few more verses. God wanted all of them. Separate unto me, these two men, to the work that I have called them, And this is really important in our lives, is to know what God is calling. What is the Holy Spirit calling you to do? There's more needs than any of us could ever meet. Even inside of this church, there's more needs than could ever be met. Jesus didn't live his life and his ministry based on needs. He lived it out of obedience to the Father. And you're going to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. I'm going to run around in that manner as well if I don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to focus on. And until until we hear his voice, we should wait to fast and pray. Say, Lord, you lead me. You guide me. You direct me. So verse 3, then having fasted and prayed. They didn't stop fasting when they received the calling. They fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. What are some applications for us in this? Is make sure you have time to be a worshiper. Make sure that you have time to be in the Word, to be in prayer, singing to the Lord, being in love with the Lord. And then also to say, Lord, what is it that you have for me? And what is it that you have have called me? And am I going out in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because we all know if we're not sent out by the Spirit, it's not going to last. You can be sent out by good intentions, you can be sent out by other people's expectations. You can be sent out by a burden that you placed on yourself, but it's only in being sent out by the Spirit that it's going to last. So first stop on this missionary journey is going to be Cyprus. So let's look in verse 4. This will take us down to verse 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, there we have it again. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So Seleucia is the port city that would then launch them to Cyprus, this island, and when they r- arrived at Salmos, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So this would be their manner in doing missions and going to these cities is there would be Jewish synagogues. And in a Jewish synagogue, they would have a time of reading the law and the prophets. And then they'd say, would anybody like to come and share about what we just read? Open mic. It'd kind of be like services tonight if we just said, okay, we were going to read this chapter and... Now, whoever has something to say about it, go ahead and get up. And so Paul and Barnabas knew that there would be an open door. So they would go in, and in the synagogues, they would preach Christ. So as we launch out into the things that God's calling us to, look for those open doors. They're not in this city too long before there arrives opposition. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos... They found a certain sorcerer, so now they're at their second city. They've traveled about 100 miles, and here's a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, and Bar literally means son of. (laughs) What a great name for a false prophet. This is the son of Jesus, and he is a false prophet. Instead of following in the footsteps of Christ, he was leading people astray through witchcraft, through sorcery. So he's using the power of Satan to be able to lead people astray. Verse 7, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. He must have been pretty smart for the scriptures to refer to him as being intelligent. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So God's doing something. There's a hunger for the word of God. And this is what we should anticipate in any community, no matter how dark it is, that there's people that God is stirring their heart to hear the word of God. That there's a hunger for the word of God, because there's nothing like God's word. There's nothing like God's love and his kindness. So this meeting is being set up in verse 8. But Elias, the sorcerer, sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from their faith. Anytime there's an open door, there's also going to be resistance. The proconsul is the governor of the region. He's the one that Rome, the Senate of Rome, has said he's going to be in charge of this island, Cyprus. This is a big deal. He's wanting to hear the word of God. It's a divine appointment. But Now you've got this sorcerer, this demonic man, who is resisting them. And Spurgeon puts it this way, that anytime there's going to be an open door to the word of God. There's also going to be resistance, but to not be afraid, because it's like flying a kite in the wind. The resistance is a big part of that kite being able to go up into the sky. And God often uses the resistance to show his glory. You're going to experience resistance inside of the open door. In fact, if there's no resistance, you've got to wonder, is this truly an open door? So Satan's going to come and attack when Those open doors come. But notice the power of God. God is much stronger. In verse 9, then Saul, who is called Paul. So now we find this transition where he's receiving this new name. And as you study the scriptures, God oftentimes will change someone's name because he's changing their character. Saul means requested. That's a great name, isn't it? I'm requested. I've got a lot of friends on Facebook. You know, I'm, I'm... That's a good name. I'm going to name my son Requested. And then, what does Paul mean? It means little, not too impressive. And that's the transformation that God did in Paul's life, from taking him to a place of pride, to a place of humility. Notice he's filled with the Spirit. So he's sent by the Spirit, but he's also filled by the Spirit, and he looked intently at him. How might this play out in our lives? So the Spirit of God begins to nudge us and say, okay, It's time to go. I'm I'm leading you to do this thing. The Holy Spirit has set you apart. You need to go talk to your neighbor across the street. You need to go serve the fourth graders, be a junior high leader, go in the mission field. Who knows knows what it is? Okay, Lord, I'm going to go. And you start to go, and then you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the endeavor that God's called you to. Has He called you to something inside of your family, with your kids, with your spouse? What's the Spirit of God saying? That's so important. The Spirit's alive and well. This book of the Bible that we see and that we study, it's the testimony of the power of the Spirit. You don't have to fear the Holy Spirit. What is it that the Holy Spirit's saying to you tonight? What situation are you in? What questions do you have? What are you confused about? Where do you need encouragement and challenge? And listen to that. And so Paul's listening to the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. And he looks at this sorcerer who's opposing him intensely, intently, and he said, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. That's a greeting for you. You son of Satan, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? It's one thing to attempt your own spiritual suicide, to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then it's a whole other thing to try to stop others from entering into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember in doing youth ministry, I did youth ministry here at at RMC, every once in a while there would be some kids that would come in and their intent, their willful intent, was to try to bring as many people away from Christ as possible. And those type of kids in any situation, they need to be stood up against. And sometimes it can happen even here in the sanctuary. And Paul knows that this man needs to be rebuked because his intention is to actually steal people away from Christ to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. So verse 11, and now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeking, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That's pretty intense, right? Hey, be be careful when you oppose God and his messengers. Amen. God's shown his power over the demonic realm here and the sorcery and this false prophet. <clears throat> Why do you think God chose for him to be blind physically? Because it symbolized that he was blind spiritually. Do you think this also rang a little bit of a bell for the Apostle Paul? When he first came to know the Lord, God gave him blindness, physical blindness, for three days. We don't know what happens to this man. We don't see a conversion that's recorded here in the book of Acts. We just see him going away blind. And verse 12 is mind-blowing. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So he was blown away by what God had accomplished in the life of this sorcerer, but what was he most astonished by? The teaching of the Lord, the teaching of Christ, the doctrine of who Jesus is, that Jesus would die for his sins, and rise again God may call you to rebuke somebody in this way and he may pronounce blindness on someone or we may be like John the Baptist John the Baptist did no miracle in his ministry but it says of John the Baptist what he spoke of Jesus Christ is true we can speak of Jesus Christ and people will be astonished at his grace and his kindness and his goodness this is when you know there's a true conversion where yes there's a blessing that's happened a miracle that's happened but they've been touched by who Jesus is and the doctrine of who Christ is. So these are quick snapshots of a few things that God is doing in these cities. And now Paul's on the move again. He's he's moving off of this island of Cyprus. Verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from there, returned to Jerusalem. So now they land... On the other side of Cyprus, which is modern-day Turkey, they came to Perga in the region of Pamphylia. If you are still got a finger on your map, you can look where we're at. We've just gone off of the island of Cyprus. And what happens here? If you're a student of the Bible, pay attention to this, because John Mark, he departs. He decides to go back to Jerusalem. Now, John Mark's going to go on to write the Gospel of Mark. And he's a real pillar in the faith. But why did he depart? Why did he leave? Did he get some news back home that somebody was sick and he needed to go back? Was it too difficult? Was it it too hard? Did he get freaked out by the sorcerer? We don't know. We just know that he departed. And why is this significant? Because as we'll study in a few weeks, on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, whose name means encouragement, he wants to give John Mark a second chance. And Paul says, not on your life. Not going to do it. He wasn't faithful. We're only going to take someone who's faithful. And this great team, Paul and Barnabas, at this point divides over John Mark and whether he can come on the missionary journey. So verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So this is the second Antioch, but it's different. It's not the Antioch in Syria. It's the Antioch in Turkey. If this isn't confusion enough, in fact, there were seven Antiochs in this region. Sounds a lot like Colorado Springs, don't you think so? Like a lot of our roads are two different roads, but they have the same name. They're like Templeton Gap, and then, you know, you go a little bit further, and it turns into circle, and you're like, what in the world's going on here? This is extremely confusing. Well, think about having seven Antiochs. So this is the Antioch that is in Turkey. Does anybody else have that frustration with some of our roads, like Austin Bluffs, then it's Garden of the Gods, or is it just me? Yeah, because the way you guys were looking at me there for a second, I thought it was just me. <laughs> Continuing in verse 14, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So they're following their habit of what they do and getting to a new city. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying men and brethren if you have any word of exhortation for the people say on open door again that's given go ahead guys speak then Paul stood up motioning with his hands men of Israel and you who fear God listen so he's addressing two groups of people the first is men of Israel Jews the second would be Gentiles who are interested in the one true living God. The Gentiles who are there and part of this synagogue service. What he now begins to show is how God all along was leading Israel to a Savior. For verse 17. What's fun in this section is maybe underline or take notes all of the things that God does. Underline the verbs, the actions of God. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Israel. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So God chose and he exalted the people of Israel, and then he delivered them. He brought them out with a strong arm. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Don't you like the way that's worded? The time in the wilderness was a time of disobedience, a time of doubting, and God was patient with them. He put up with them. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, this is the book of Joshua time frame, he distributed their land to them by allotment. This is right where we're studying in Judges. Each tribe was given a certain territory that they were to go and possess. And after he gave them Judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet 13 judges specifically that we're going to be studying in our weekend study, these deliverers that God raised up. So what's happening is we find that God is ruling his people with different points of emphasis. We find the giving of the law with Moses. We find the giving of the promised land with Joshua. We find these gracious deliverers that God raises up. And each time we find the children of Israel rejecting God's leadership. And ultimately it's expressed In verse 21, and afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. God will confirm our decisions. If you don't want his leadership, his lordship, his rule in your life, and you say, I want these kings that everybody else has. We want to be like the other nations was the reasoning for Israel. Then God says, okay, interesting that God gave them Saul because it's exactly what they were asking for. Sometimes God gives his people a leader that they deserve to be a reflection of their very own hearts because Saul was not a good leader for the children of Israel. In verse 22, And when he had removed him, he removed Saul. He raised up from them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Again, the action of God. God removed Saul God raised up David. God found a man that was after his own heart, the shepherd boy who was out in the fields. Samuel had the task of anointing the new king. He comes to the sons of Jesse, to the oldest. Eliab is strong, tall, dark, handsome, intelligent. Samuel's singing, he's going to be a great king. This is exactly who the Lord would have. God says, nope, not my choice. Went through all the brothers, not my choice, not my choice. Finally, like Samuel's going, do you have another son? Oh, yeah. He's the young Rudy boy, the red-haired boy out in the fields. He wasn't even called to this monument occasion. He wasn't even considered to be a candidate. He wasn't asked to throw his name into the hat. So here comes David, and God says, yeah, this is my man, because he was a worshiper. He was a man after God's own heart. You may be familiar with the story of David. David had many flaws, didn't he? Many sins. But in the midst of all of that, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a worshiper of God. Notice a promise now that God gives to David. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. From the seed of David. That was the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel. David wanted to build God a house, a temple, Originally, the prophet Nathan said, yeah, go for it. Then Nathan had to get back with him and say, no, I didn't pray first. I didn't check in with God. Your hands are bloody from war. You can't build this house. But God wants to build you a house. Isn't that far out? Here, David wanted to build God a temple. And God is going to build David an everlasting house saying, through your descendants, there's going to be a savior. What we find in the history of Israel is that we need a savior. Laws can't save us. Judges, deliverers, looking for this next leader to set us free. We need more than that. We need more than a king. We need a savior to deliver us from our sins, to walk with us. In verse 24, now it jumps forward to John the Baptist. John the Baptist announces this savior. And after John had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, John the Baptist prepared people's hearts by saying you need to turn from your sins. Recognize that you need a Savior. Verse 25, and John was finishing his course. Don't you like that? The race that God had for him to run. He said, who do you think that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whom I'm not worthy to loose." It's a freeing day when you realize you're not the Messiah. Amen. When you're not the Savior, hopefully you've realized that by this point in your journey. And if anybody expects you to solve their problems, to fix their life, to put things back together for them, you just let them know, I am not he. I'm not the Messiah. I can't do it for you. But I can point you to Jesus Christ. And John did that wonderfully. And then also realize who we are we're not worthy to do the simplest task for christ that's what john is saying here i'm not even worthy to take off his sandals the servants would take off the sandals of the master who comes in john says i'm not worthy to do this in verse 26 men and brethren sons of the family of abraham and those among you who fear god to you the word of this salvation has been sent god has given you the gospel he's given you the good news For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, had fulfilled them in condemning him. This is sobering. In Jerusalem, they heard the law and the prophets weekly, But yet, they didn't know Christ, and they fulfilled the law and prophets in condemning Jesus Christ and delivering him over to his death. May we never assume that just being around the things of God is enough. It's not enough just to hear the Word of God or to read the Word of God. It's about the condition of our hearts. And here their hearts were hard, and they were far from the Lord. They were busy cleaning up the outside of their life, but not looking at their hearts. They're Pharisees, they're scribes. And religion can do that to us if we're not careful. An open heart, a true and honest heart before the Lord. In verse 28, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that they should put him to death. The perfect sacrifice. There was no reason for Christ to be killed. Of all the people that have ever walked this earth, we've all been sinners except for Jesus. We all deserve death because of our sin. Jesus didn't deserve his death. He was the pure, spotless lamb. Verse 29. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. So we have this beautiful account of the gospel, of Christ's crucifixion, and they've taken Jesus from the tree and laid him in the tomb. What an emotional that experience that would have been to take Christ from the cross, the Savior that you love, to pull those nails out of the cross, dead weight. His back has been beaten, he's pierced in his side, his hands and his feet, lifeless. And now you're carrying him and you lay him in the tomb. You put the stone over the tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. But God. Whenever you see those two words in scripture, stop and pay attention. God is greater than sin. God is greater than death. He's defeated sin and death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope that we never get a calloused heart towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There was a young man who was preparing for his ordination. And his particular denomination, when he got ordained, he would have a, a group of pastors that would ask him doctrinal questions. And one of them was, what was justification? And he says, just as though you've never sinned, with no emotion no deeper answer than that, this smug theological answer. And one of the pastors that was then doing this interview said, you know, you, you got it right from a textbook perspective, but it was disgraceful in how you communicated it because it has no heart. It hasn't impacted your heart in your life. And sometimes we can just cruise through these truths and because maybe we've heard them before, they don't impact us anymore. And we go, oh, justified, declared righteous. Got that one. That's huge, right? Declared righteous. Here we are, sinful people. If you're in Christ, the moment that you're in Christ, you're declared righteous, justified. But God raised him from the dead. Maybe you're having a crummy day, but God raised him from the dead. This is the best news that ever happened that we never get tired of. Think about what it was like for Peter to come to the tomb to find it empty. When the angel gave the instruction, tell the disciples and Peter. Why Peter? Why the emphasis on Peter? Because Peter had failed. Peter denied the Lord. Because Christ was risen, Peter was forgiven. For Mary Magdalene, this woman who was possessed by demons, how scary that would have been for her. Christ had delivered her. She was so moved by Christ that she couldn't leave the tomb. And Jesus is risen, and she encounters the risen Savior. Because Christ is risen, we're forgiven. We're going to heaven, and we don't have to go through any day of this life alone. But God raised him from the dead. Amen? Amen. So verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. This is prior to his ascension, after his resurrection. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. So he's speaking to people that are familiar with the Old Testament. And he says, we're declaring to you good news. Never forget that, that Jesus Christ invading your life by surrendering to the gospel, it is absolute good news. Sometimes when we present the gospel to people, we really present it as bad news. Well, you know, do you really want to? You know, things aren't going to be the same if you receive Christ as your Savior. You, know. you too can be just like me and be bummed out the rest of your life. <laughs> Welcome to the lemon-sucking club, right? It's good news. We should never forget that. It's glad tidings. That's what Paul declared. I'm sure he declared it with a smile on his face. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for their children in that he has raised up Jesus also is written in the second psalm. If you want to study this further, go back to these sections in the Old Testament where Paul is quoting from, and you'll see an impactful message about Christ. This is from Psalms 2, verse 7. It says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As you read Psalms 2, it speaks about how Christ is conquering over the nations, how the nations rage, how the nations are out of control. But Christ will come, and He will conquer the nations. The first first coming of Christ points to the second coming of Christ, where He's going to rule and reign. In verse thirty four, and that He has raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus: I will give you the sure mercies of David. Christ was risen, never to face the grave again, never to see corruption. This phrase, "I give you the sure mercies of David," comes from Isaiah 55, and I'd like to read it to you. It's the first three verses of Isaiah 55. Paul's quoting this because it shows us an incredible invitation of Christ. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Are you there? Are you thirsty for Christ? Are you broke financially? Thankfully, the invitation of Christ isn't if you've got $1,000, you can come. If you've got $10,000, you can come. If you're thirsty, if you have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You're going to receive something from Christ you can't pay for. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Can I hear an amen? Have you had any purchases in the last week or month that you just regret? and you're, Man, it just didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to. And your wages for what does not satisfy. The things of this world can't satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. And incline your ear and come to me here and your souls shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. That's what's quoted here. In Acts chapter 13, I will give you the sure mercies of David. When you go back and you read Isaiah 55, God made an everlasting covenant with David. God's wanting to bring us into that covenant, that covenant of mercy, that everlasting covenant that happens through the blood of Jesus. What a tremendous invitation from Christ. Verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. This is Psalm 16 verse 10. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. So Psalm 16 can't speak of David because he was food for worms. His body decayed. That's what the scripture is telling us. That's a comforting thought for the last Wednesday night in May. We're food for worms, right? But Jesus' body didn't see corruption. He was raised before his body started to corrupt. Verse 37 But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. As Psalm 16, verse 10, is quoted, as you go on to the next verse, verse 11, it says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. Have you found that to be true? So Jesus died and was risen to never see corruption in his body so we could have forgiveness of sin, So that we could be in his presence. And in his presence, joy is fulfilled. It's the fullness of joy. So now here comes the invitation. It's the point of decision. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, through Jesus, is being preached to you the forgiveness of sins. All of your sin, past, present, and future, can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from a few things. From all things. Aren't you thankful for that? He who believes is justified. For which you should not be justified by the law of Moses. This phrase. Just as though you've never sinned. Declared righteous by God. How does it happen? As you believe in Christ. It's his blood that covers our sin. In fact it washes away our sin. And it can't be done by the law. Through Moses. Only through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Works, rules, regulations, they're never going to bring you to Christ. Let's take three that are really good swimmers and put them all in Orange County and say, all right, I want you to swim to Hawaii. And inevitably of those three swimmers, one is going to be an even better swimmer, maybe an Olympic swimmer. He or she's going to go farther than the other two, but guess what? They're all going to drown. There's no way they can swim all the way to Hawaii. There's no way that you can be justified by your works, only by Jesus Christ. May God tonight, if you're a believer, just remind you that you're declared righteous by the Lord. Because Satan's the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? And a lot of times, we're not wearing the truth of justified. We're not walking in the label of justified. We're believing the lies of the enemy about ourselves, of failure. Oh, how can God forgive you? you did it again, loser. And that's what we're walking around in. And that's what Satan always wants to project on us. And you need to know through the power of believing in the blood of Jesus that you're justified. One of the things that has been refreshing to me in this last week is to think about how opposed we are to God before we know Christ. And then by simple faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that we believe in him, we repent and believe, God pours out his favor on us. Now, if you're like me, most of the time, if somebody has hurt me really deeply and they apologize and they say that they're sorry, it's really hard for me to just turn on the favor button and just go, whoa, oh, oh, you know, and here it is like, yeah, you know, it's like, I'm going to warm up slowly, you know, I'm going to come back very slowly in this, this, this process. And that's not what God did. It's like crazy grace, I'm totally opposed to God. God's like, you're my enemy. Then all of a sudden we repent and believe in Jesus Christ and God's like, that's my boy! Yeah! You know, and you're justified. It's amazing truth that is given to us. Verse 40, beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. So here's a warning out of Habakkuk 1.5. No, not a backache, Habakkuk 1.5. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were there to declare it to you. So Paul's saying, you know what? Here I am, I'm the messenger of God. Don't be like this generation in Habakkuk who didn't receive even though it had been declared to them. We'll finish out here in the last 10 verses. A conflict arises. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So there's some Gentiles that were there and they wanted to hear more. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? You've got to be convinced to stay in the grace of God. There's something about us that wants to go back to the law, to think that we can earn or deserve our favor with God. And Paul's saying no. Barnabas is saying Stay in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So now we've got a revival taking place. There's a movement of God. The whole city of Antioch here in Turkey is coming out to hear the word. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Envy is a powerful tool. If you've never realized that, we need to be careful of envy. They're going to come against Paul because of envy. They crucified Christ because of envy. Saul tried to kill David because of envy. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews. The gospel comes first to the Jews. But since you rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, who judged them unworthy of everlasting life? They did. They did. They made the decision that they didn't want everlasting life. So what does Paul do? He gets really bummed out and he calls for his mom. He says, Mom, there's some Jews up here that won't receive Jesus. and It's making me really sad. No, what does he do? He goes to those who want to hear. He turns to the Gentile, these non-Jewish people. That's all that Gentile means. If someone's rejected Christ in your circle, don't just get discouraged. Look around for somebody who does want to hear. For so the Lord has commanded us, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul understood the heart for the Gentiles. One of the reasons that this is recorded for us in Scripture Is this is a monumental change for Paul. He's starting to understand God's calling upon his life for the Gentiles. Verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They're like, wow, God loves us. We don't have to earn this by the law. We can receive it by grace. And I love how verse 48 is phrased because we see God's sovereignty, God's predestination... God's choosing and man's responsibility. And as many had been appointed. So we see God's work in salvation, but then we see man's responsibility to believe. They've responded in belief in salvation. And as we study scripture, we see that both are true. God's choosing and man's responsibility to believe. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the region. Don't you like that? That's what we pray for in Colorado, in our region, in all regions of the world, that the word of God would be spread. As you're watching the news and you see so much turmoil in Syria, in this region that we're studying tonight in our Bibles and in Turkey, pray that the word of God would be spread. The word of God needs to be spread in that region tonight just as much as when Paul lived and pray for it for our own region as well. But the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. They got the powerful players upset, and then consequently Paul and Barnabas were kicked out. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. This is what Jesus taught them to do. If someone rejects you, then shake the dust off your feet and keep going. Go to the next city, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So read ahead. Next week we'll continue Paul's first missionary journey. Some application for us tonight is first, minister to the Lord. This whole chapter begins with ministering to the Lord. Come and take communion tonight and just let the Lord know how much you love him, how thankful you are for what he's done for you. And then be sent by the Holy Spirit. Allow room for the Holy Spirit to shake things up in our lives. As we go home tonight, it may be a little bit different. Lord, what do you have? As we get up tomorrow, God, what do you have? What's what's the Holy Spirit saying for tomorrow? The Holy Spirit knows people. Many times our our existence can feel like the walking dead, doesn't it? It's another Thursday. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear about Jesus. I'm convinced of that. My only purpose on this planet is to pay that stinking mortgage or pay the rent, you know. God wants to shake it up a little bit, you know, and say be open to what the spirit is doing. I am sure that some of you came in tonight with some things that the spirit is putting on your heart that you think is absolutely crazy or ludicrous. You're going, there's no way that God could call me to do this. There's no way that God could be asking me to do this. You know the voice of the Holy Spirit and follow it. Follow the Holy Spirit. Be sent by the Holy Spirit, obey the Spirit as Paul did throughout this text, and then preach Christ just as Paul did. Isn't it glorious even just to hear the gospel again tonight of forgiveness of sins and justification? Preach Christ in the midst of opposition. There's going to be opposition, but that's what makes the kite fly. That's what causes the, the movement of the Lord for people to see the power of God. And as we close tonight, if you haven't given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, We saw two groups. We saw people who believed unto forgiveness, unto being declared righteous, and we saw those that said, nope, Jesus isn't for me. I don't believe in Christ. And if you've rejected Christ up until this point, as we come to communion, come find someone here in the front of the stage where it's a little quieter. Let them know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. And it really is good news. You believe unto salvation, saying, God, would you forgive me? Would you be the Lord of my life? Eternity is real. It's absolutely real. I don't want any of you to head into eternity without knowing Christ as your Savior. So let's pray.